Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. Well, what a disappointing night of sports that was, huh? The Utah Jazz fall to the Lakers. The NFL playoff game is a blowout. The Rams just rout the Cardinals. Once that pick six was thrown, you knew it was over. 21-0. Kyler Murray just throwing a ball up for grabs. Granted, it was going to be 16-0, and they were probably going to lose the game anyway. But since the Niners had just erased a 17-0 lead against that Rams team in that stadium last week, it probably wouldn't have probably wouldn't have completely thought the deal was sealed. But with the pick six, I thought the deal was sealed. It was over. So five home teams advance. The Niners go in and beat Dallas, although now Garoppolo is hurt. So man, Green Bay. Don't don't blow this, Green Bay. This is your chance. There are all kinds of skill players down in Tampa. The Niners quarterback is down. This thing is just like Green Bay's path to the Super Bowl is right there. All right, we'll talk more about the NFL coming up. Uh, The Utah Jazz lose. They cannot shoot the three-pointer. Cannot make it. Now, the Nuggets, the Jazz, and the Lakers played three games in three nights. Everybody went one and one, and the rest of the team always won. That's not surprising. Now, the one thing you can say is perhaps the best team should have gone 2-0 and and the worst team should have gone 0-2, and that would have happened if the Jazz had beaten the Lakers. And the Jazz led going to the fourth quarter. And it was still the Jazz were only down by two with about four minutes to go. But Donovan Mitchell doesn't score in the fourth quarter. When your closer doesn't score, you're probably going to lose. Mitchell and Rudy Gay and Jordan Clarkson and Bogey were a combined one for 26 from three. Now, the Jazz weren't completely useless from three. Conley made his threes. Joe Ingles made his threes. Uh, Royce O'Neal also shot the ball well from three. So the Jazz weren't completely inept from the three-point line, but they were mostly inept from the three-point line. Live by the three, die by the three. And the Lakers are not a good defensive team, but they crowded the lane, they made them shoot the three, and they couldn't buy it. Jazz shoot 26 from three. Now the three guys I mentioned, Ingles and O'Neal and Conley, you know they they were pretty solid. They were 11 of 20. That's 55 percent. But the other guys just couldn't get anything to go. So the Jazz get beat. Now they come home to face Houston. We're going to take a break right now. When we come back, the best of the post game show. You'll hear what went wrong in LA. Stay with us. Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. The Utah Jazz lose to the Lakers on the back end of a back-to-back. For the Lakers, well, that's a good win because they had just gotten humiliated by the Nuggets by 37. For the Jazz, really disappointing they couldn't sweep this back-to-back because Phoenix just finds a way to get stuff done. Booker goes for 48 last night, and they get another win. And now the Jazz are five and a half games behind the Suns. All right, here's the best of the postgame show. On 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. It's your Jazz recap here on DJ and PK on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. The Jazz fall last night to the Lakers, 101-95. Tough offensive performance uh, from the Jazz. Shot just 37%. Uh, Boyan Bogdanovich, Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gay, and Jordan Clarkson went 1 of 26 from 3. The Jazz struggled to put it in the basket. Uh, LeBron James had 25-7-7 in the win for the Lakers. Mike Conley had 20 points on 6 of 12, shooting 5 of 9 from 3 to lead the way for the Jazz. Let's jump into the postgame sound. Start off with Jazz head coach Quinn Snyder. Hugh, obviously a tough shooting night for you guys. Was it one of those nights that you liked the shots you got and they just weren't going in or, or were there things that you could have done better on the offensive end? 
Um, you know, I thought we had, we had too many really tough shots, whether they were late clock, um, you know, where I would have liked to see us, you know, I think some of the shots we had, you know, are makeable, um, but we made it harder on ourselves, I think, than, than it needed to be as far as, you know, making better reads and moving the ball quicker, um, you know, and generating, you know, some better shots. Uh, and I think that showed, you know, obviously, um, you know, the, the defense has been something that, you know, we've really focused on and worked on and um, had an emphasis. And I, I thought we really defended, particularly in the first half, um, you know, where, you know, I thought it kept us, it kept us right there in the game. And then the third quarter, obviously we, you know, we had a, had, had some good possessions and made a run and kept, keep, kept guarding. But, um, you know, we've been, you know, we've been good offensively and there's a reason we've been good. And, um, you know, I think this is one we'll see the film and, and see how we can be better. Tony Jones. Um, what was the what was the, the tipping point for you guys on the last nine minutes when the Lakers made that deciding run? Well, they ran the small small action. Um, we got cross matched in transition where a couple times, you know, JC ended up on LeBron, and that's just you know us not being urgent enough to try to get matched up when we can. And um, you know, Rudy was guarding Johnson, and you know trying to get out and hedge and get under, we got hung up. Um, and then when we did execute it right, uh, you know, Johnson had the ball and made a really tough finish, you know, over Rudy. That, that, that's a play that usually is, you know, we're in a pretty good position at that point. But, you know, I thought, you know, when you're not scoring during that stretch, what we scored 17 in the fourth quarter, that, that makes it hard too because you're just continually fending it off. But, you know, I, I thought we, we hung in there in, in spite of that. Um but, you know, weren't able to, uh, you know, to get a push on the offensive end and, and put more pressure on them by, by making some shots and scoring the basketball. Andy Larson. Two questions for you, Quinn. First, just kind of on those offensive rebounds, did you see kind of where they came from or kind of what your team, what you hoped your team would do better? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, when we're involved in, in help situations, in, in isolation, um, a lot of times that'll take people out of position to rebound and you've really got to, um, have an urgency to find a body. You know, I think some of them that got tipped, you know, that, that was kind of what I was referring to in the first half. I don't know what, um, the offensive rebound totals were in the first half, but I thought we did a good job, you know, getting on the glass, but we, pretty when Rudy's coming over to help and contest shots, um, you know, that's when we need to really dig in on the glass and, and come up with some of those. And, you know, when you do that, sometimes, you know, they turn into buckets the other way. And we had some looks on the other end that, um, that were good. You know, I thought we had some that were, we took some tougher shots than we want to. Um, but if we can come up with those rebounds and close possessions, you know, it gives us a chance to generate offense and transition. And then my second question is on a night when Jordan is struggling like that, not only shooting, but kind of in other aspects of the game, do you give any thought to putting in Mike Conley earlier or, or making some sort of other change there? Well, we, we, we've played, you know, we put Mike in a little earlier than typically we do. Um, Jordan got hung up in a couple of situations defensively. Um, you know, the, the, like I said, where he was cross matched because he was the one that picked up the ball, which, you know, is good. Um, 
you know, but I, I think with Mike's situation, you know, this is a back-to-back. Um, we've been conscious of his minutes in those situations. So um, I don't think we hang it on, you know, any one guy or a substitution. That there, there's always room for that. Um, we had a lot of guys tonight that um, on the offensive end could have been more efficient. Um, and again, I, like I said, I thought collectively we defended pretty well. So um, there's always... You know, you're always going through whether you want to keep a guy in and take him out, you know, and what that math is, um, you know, but in this case, particularly given where Mike's been, we've been pretty committed to keeping his minutes, you know, at a certain level, um, you know, for all the reasons that you guys know, you know his endurance and his health and, and whatnot. And, you know, that's tough because Mike was having a good night and we're aware of that. There's Jazz head coach Quinn Snyder. Let's get to the players now. Uh, start things off with Rudy Gobert. Rudy, you guys had that uh, great third quarter to kind of surge ahead, and then things seemed to kind of fall apart in the fourth as, as the game progressed. Kind of what was what was the difference? What went wrong in the fourth quarter? I think we we just uh, we just got a little disconnected. You know, I started offensively, and and then I think uh, we had. For the most part of the game, I thought we played really good defense. You know, we just had a one stretch when uh, uh, we're giving up offensive rebounds and, and we're giving up back doors and I, I didn't box out my man. Uh, we, we just had a bad stretch defensively, but for the most part, I thought we were solid. And offensively, there's just a stretch when we stopped moving the ball and, and you know, we we had a few bad shots, a few turnovers, and and then they were able to, to run on us and, and get the momentum. Sarah Todd? Rudy, it seems like you guys never really got into an offensive rhythm, that it was kind of start and stop anytime you guys actually got a few things going. What, what were the problems that you saw out there offensively? Like I said, you know, I, I just think we, I thought in the third, we'd, we're doing a great job, you know, moving the ball, running, sharing the ball. And, and then we had just one stretch, uh, you know, when we, that stopped, you know, we just forcing a little bit, um, not finding each other, you know, and then, and making it harder on ourselves. And when we did that, you know, obviously uh, we can complain about a lot of things, but, but external for sure. But, but at the end of the day, we can control and we can be better. And then just, uh, yeah, just, just, just be better uh, moving the ball. We, we, uh, we're going to watch film and see what we can do better. But uh, I like the way we play defense for the most part of the game. Andy Larson. Rudy, what happened on the Russell Westbrook dunk? And can I ask what do y'all, what did he say to you afterwards? Uh, I don't think he said anything to me. <laughs> I think he likes, he, he talks to himself a lot, but, but um, I watch it. It, it, was, it was a nice dunk. It was a nice dunk. I just, I just felt like I couldn't jump because he had his hand on my, on my shoulder, but you know, they're not, they're not going to call that. They, they're going to let the big man uh, t- take what he deserves and, and, uh, and the fans uh, enjoyed a, a nice dunk. So it was a nice dunk. Eric, go ahead. Rudy, as you mentioned, it, it seemed like overall the defense was a lot better for the most part uh, tonight. It did seem like they had a little bit of success late in the fourth quarter with the, the small, small pick and roll. Um, where do you see, what are, what are kind of the challenges of defending that? Where do you see room for improvement in terms of matching up against that? I think our communication uh, communication can be a lot better. You know, I, I think we got to, even on a back-to-back, even when we're a little tired, we got to, uh, it doesn't take much energy to talk and we need to, to really uh, 
keep getting better at that and make it a habit. And, uh, and then, yeah, just, you know, there's, there's always going to be uh, a few bad stretches. We are going to make mistakes at some point, but let's make sure that those, um, when that happens, we're able to quickly uh, react and, and make sure it doesn't happen twice in a row. You know, and, and tonight I think we got a stretch when uh, we all kind of made a mistake one by one, you know, uh, one after the other, and, and they were able to get back in the game during that stretch. So uh, just got to keep, you know, keep getting better, keep keep communicating, and we'll be all right. There's Rudy, who had 19 and 16 in the loss. Let's now go to Mike Conley. Hey, Mike. So you guys put together a really good run in the third quarter, and then the wheels kind of came off in the fourth. What was uh, – kind of the differences as the game progressed down the stretch? Um, well, I think that, you know, we had a stretch there where we made the game a lot tougher than we needed needed to be. Uh, when we were playing our best basketball, uh, offensively the ball was moving, um, guys were touching it and just spinning it around the horn and making plays. But our defense was was pretty solid throughout the the whole evening except for the, the stretch with Stanley Johnson and – and how he got going there and um, in that small, small pick and roll area. So um, I thought we, we did a lot of good things, um, just not enough. I guess a team that obviously was hungry, hungry for a win and, you know, made the plays at the end of the game. Sarah Todd. Mike, is there anything that you can say about the offensive rebounding in the fourth quarter and maybe why there was such a big discrepancy there? Um, I think a lot of it has, you know, with, with the personnel they have and with LeBron and the attention that he, um, he draws, we, we had to get into a lot of different rotations and a lot of different guys cutting a lot of guys just being active on the weak side, um, kind of causes us to be in, 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 you know, different, different, uh, mismatches, whether our little, our guards are on bigger guys or, um, you know, vice versa, just, just, we end up end up in bad situations sometimes, but um, you know we we still have to communicate through those situations. Um, but that's what they're good at is you know off ball movement with with LeBron having the ball and and being able to pick you apart and you know kind of have you man down situations and causing you to be late on on you know the the, the offensive boards. Hi, Derek. Mike, are all those things that you just mentioned kind of are are those inherent in the difficulties of of you guys kind of figuring out how to defend those, those small, small matchups. Well, yeah, that's all, that's all, you know, a part of it, you know, with the small, small stuff, it's, it's, uh, it's been tough for us all year. And um, it's been, you know, one of the areas we've always, you know, had to try to work on and, and games like tonight, it was obvious that um, we had some issues there, but, you know, with the, the, you know, the, the, the personnel for the other team, really dictates, you know, our rotations dictates how aggressive we are, how much we're out on the floor, how, how pushed out we are on the floor, which causes, you know, guys to be out of position and long rebounds and different things like that can happen. So um, all things we, we still can, can, can improve at, you know, it's not the end of the world. We know we can get better at it. Um, but games like tonight is, you know, uh, it was obviously evident. Mike Conley, 20 points, four assists in the loss for the Jazz. Let's wrap things up now with Donovan Mitchell. Hey, Don. So you guys had a pretty great stretch in the third quarter where you kind of took control and then um, weren't really able to continue that into the fourth. What was kind of the difference as the game went along? Uh, you no, know, we, we, we competed defensively. 
you know, I think the biggest thing is um, they missed some shots. Offense got a little stagnant, but, you know, they, they kind of got on the run. Stanley Jackson kind of got going late. I think that's what uh, ended up changing the game. Andy Larson. You mentioned the missed shots. Were you happy with the shots you were getting, or do you think the shot selection could have been uh, better? There, there are a few that could have been better. For myself personally, I think there are a few that could have been better. Um, you know, I think there's just certain instances where the game gets harder, you know, when you play a team that's, you know, as aggressive as they are. Um, so shot, a few shots could have been better. Uh, but overall, you know, as far as the threes, uh, I'm almost okay with most of them or pretty much all of them. Um, but could have been a little better. Sure, Todd. Donovan, it seemed like you guys, it was kind of start and stop to getting some kind of a rhythm for the offense up until that third quarter. What what changed to get into that rhythm and then what kind of fell off because it started to get stagnant again in the fourth? Um, I don't know. I don't really have an answer for why it got stagnant. I think, you know, it's just kind of a feel thing and, you know, you would like to say, oh, it's we're half more than halfway through. We should have a feel by now. But, you know, there's there's times like this where you just, it's gotta, you gotta go through this to, to, to elevate, you know what I mean? I think this is just one of those instances we'll look back on and say, okay, we watched the film, you know, what did we do wrong? How do we get it better? You know, how do we become better in those instances? In those instances? And I think um, shot selection was huge, but, you know, driving, spacing, you know, driving, you know, finding guys, I think a lot of that plays into it for sure. Andy. Uh, I also wanted to ask, you know, the, they played small with LeBron at, at the five for a lot of that game and, and or especially at the end. And kind of how did you think you guys did against that look and, and what do you guys really need to focus on to really kind of win those minutes? Um, again, I, I won't say everything. Like I won't harp on it too much because, you know, I don't know the last time me, Boyan and JC missed all of our threes, you know, so we make a few of them and changes the game, you know, credit to them for being aggressive on their blacks, you know, kind of clogging the paint. And fortunately we missed, unfortunately we missed a few, we missed some shots. You know, I I think, you know, like I said, if we make a few, the game may change, but you can't always rely on making shots. I can't say defensively we had, you know, too many lapses that, you know, cost us the game. They, they, they hit some shots as well, but, you know, continuing to move the ball. Like I said, like I told Sarah, just finding ways to, to elevate our offense. It got stagnant tonight. It, it definitely did. And, you know, we guys got to look at the film and just and be better. There's Donovan. Struggled shooting the ball. 13 points on 6 of 19 shooting. Did have 8 boards and 7 assists. Next up for the Jazz, they take on the Rockets. Coming up uh, here at Vivint Arena tomorrow night. Tip-off will be at 7. Pre-game starts at 6. But coming up next, more DJ and PK here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. There's the best of the post-game show. We'll take a break. When we come back, the Pac-12 Commissioner, George Klyovkov with PK and I. He joined us right at the end of the show on Friday. If you missed it, if you didn't get it, wherever you get podcasts. If you miss any part of the show, you can podcast the whole show or you can podcast individual segments you know interviews you want to catch and all that wherever you get podcasts uh it doesn't matter go get it google play uh itunes stitcher wherever you want go go get it but we'll play george klavkov you'll hear him next on the playoff on uh recruiting on how much of this turnaround that the pac-12 desperately needs is on the commissioner's office how much is on schools george klavkov pac-12 commissioner next DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. We are joined right now by the Pac-12 Commissioner, George Klyavkov. Commissioner, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks for having me on. 
You've done a lot of these interviews. You talked to a lot of people. You came through town and did a, uh, a tour and met with a lot of media up at the University of Utah when you're here. You've done that in other towns. So a lot of these questions go towards, you know, what's wrong with the Pac-12 and how can it be fixed and how can the reputation be upgraded? And before we get into all of that, and we will, I'm curious how much of what has gone wrong, what needs to be fixed, can be done by the Pac-12 commissioner and the conference office, and what percentage is on the schools? Because obviously the TV contract matters, and that's not something a coach can control, but obviously hiring good coaches, assistant coaches, and, and bringing in talented recruits is not on the conference office. So what is the, the balance here? How much of this is on your plate? Yeah, listen, I think it's, it's probably 80-20, probably 80% of the, uh, the decisions that lead to football success. Uh, happen on the campus and not at the conference, but the 20% is an important 20%, right? We we have to be better about providing a better platform when we renegotiate our media rights, and, and that's related to revenue, it's related to distribution, it's related to competitive advantage, deciding who gets to play at what time of the day for, you know, for highlighting for AP voters uh, and CFP voters on the East Coast. So we, we have a lot of work to do, but uh, the, the, the larger input to football success comes on the campus for sure. Commissioner, at least publicly, there seems to be a reluctance to want to come up with a format to expand the playoff. How much of that do you think is self-serving in terms of the conferences looking out for themselves and aren't really interested in going beyond what's best for them individually? I think everybody's trying to balance what's right for themselves and their conference with what's uh, right for college athletics and college football. And it's a difficult balancing act. And I think, you know, in the past, uh, folks have had the opportunity to kind of work through these issues in private and, you know, make the kind of accommodations for each other that are required to get to a yes. And I think the mistake that we made in this process was, we announced in June, you know, the month before I started, a uh, proposal that came out of a subcommittee, which were four of the 11 members that have to say yes to change the format within the current term. And it was announced the same day that the other seven got to see it for the first time. And I think in the past, what has happened is all of these really difficult discussions that have been going through the last seven months have happened privately, not in the press. <laughs> and, and then once you come to a solution, you announce it and everybody is delighted. I think we've misset the fans' expectations back in June, but this is a process that, I, uh, that has happened from what I've, I've, has been shared with me by the other commissioners every single time we've done this, right? There's a negotiation, you get to the right answer, it takes time. Uh, this time we just happen to be doing it in the press, which I think is, is, a, is a bad idea and I hope we don't do it again. Certainly an expanded playoff would bring in more money. Nobody doubts that, and that alone will probably ensure that it happens one day sooner, not later. But the whole competitive aspect of college football, I don't know that that changes, and I don't know that league's reputations change. Alabama and Georgia won semifinal games in blowouts, and most of the playoff semifinals since we went to a four-team tournament here have been blowouts. So putting in... Teams 5 through 12 seems to say, well, we're going to have some more lopsided games. How will that change the Pac-12's image? Will it be, you know, if you, if you can't win those games and you're going out early or getting blown out by whoever is as good as Alabama or Georgia, it's going to be like the basketball tournament where there's some level of satisfaction in saying we were Sweet 16 or we were Elite 8 or we were Final Four. How's that going to work? 
Well, I, I think basketball is actually a really good analogy for why it will work uh, once you expand CFP. I think the you know the issue with a four-team playoff is if you were good in one of the early years of the four-team playoff, it becomes a lot easier to recruit five and four-star athletes and to get back there again. And I think you see that as kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because the teams that were good in the early years of the CFP got uh, higher recruited players. They were able to get back. And now the vast majority of the CFP invitations have gone to four or five schools. And if we would have had a similar kind of structure in basketball, I think you would have never seen a team like Gonzaga be able to get into that mix, right? It was the fact that you had 64 and then 68 teams uh, in the mix for basketball that allowed kids who wanted to go to Gonzaga to say, you know, I will get to play in my championship. I may not be the top four, the top eight team, you know, on the first or second line of the NCAA tournament when I get in, but at least I'm going to be playing in the tournament. And that allowed them to, over time, build a program, which is now a top 10 program. And uh, I think that's what happens. I think when you have more access uh, kids are broader in how they think about where I can go to school and still participate for a national championship. And then it takes time, but that over time allows for a much more democratic spread of the talent across college football. Uh, Commissioner, that leads me right into my next question. I have to say, I must applaud you first on being willing to address the realities rather than just basically blow smoke over them. And you've been great. And I was at the Pac-12 title game and you were downstairs giving the press conference and you spoke openly about keeping kids that are growing up into the Pac-12 communities local and rather than having to go out. I, I'm, a, I'm a Phoenix kid myself, went to Arizona State, and I can recite all the kids who've left. I mean, they just get nobody, basically. Keely Ringo, who makes the interception for Georgia to seal it, goes to Saguaro, which is right there in the Phoenix area, coached by a coach who has legendary ASU roots, the defensive coordinator. He and his brothers played at ASU, and ne- nevertheless, the kid goes to Georgia. I can't blame them, but you spoke openly about how we have to fix that. Now, my thought for you is we all agree something has to be done, but what are the tangible things that can be done to prevent this from happening? Because so much of the talent, I just use Arizona because that's a local example. Bryce Young, who threw the pass, is from Pasadena. Obviously, California is a massive amount of talent. What can be done at the conference level and the individual level to prevent this from happening in such a wide spread rate that it is yeah we have we have so much talent in our footprint and you know the the starting quarterbacks at the beginning of the season at alabama and georgia and ohio state and clemson clemson um, were, you know and oklahoma we're all from our footprint right yep. it, it, yes. it, it can't happen so listen there's there's two ways to i think turn, turn the tide of recruiting well, one is by taking shortcuts and the other is by making investments and our, our league is not about taking shortcuts. I mean, we just don't do that. Um, so we have to focus on investments. And I think those investments come in many different forms, but, but, but let's look at two of them, right? Facilities and coaching hires. And I think you've seen in the past couple of years, and particularly in, the, in this past couple of months, significant um, investments in our football program. So obviously, yeah, you guys are very familiar with um, the, the beautiful remodel at Rice Eccles and all the money that was put into that to, 
to make that the stadium it is today. You know, Oregon State pressed the button and exploded the west side of their stadium uh, last week, and they're rebuilding that with $90 million in private funds. Oregon announced in uh, October, I believe it was, uh, a 170,000-square-foot football practice facility. It'll be the greatest practice facility in the country. Um, you saw the investment in coaches, Washington State, Washington, o- Oregon, right, the defensive coordinator from Georgia, who, whose team gave up, I think it was, you know, something like 13 passing and rushing touchdowns in 15 games this year. And he's now going to be the head coach at Oregon. Obviously, Lincoln Riley at USC. I mean, there are big investments in football going on across our, our footprint, and that's what's going to get the kids to want to come. And you've already seen five-star kids that had previously committed elsewhere recommit to Pac-12 schools. You've seen kids that were considering other places now in the transfer portal coming back to us. And I think that's going to continue. And I think the investment by one school, I mean, USC and Lincoln Riley is a great example. I think the investment by USC and Lincoln Riley and his coaching staff will have benefits not just for USC, but for, for all of our schools. I think it, uh, you know, kind of the tide that rises all boats. Well, you can talk shortcuts and you can talk investments. Uh, when you say shortcuts, I immediately think of schools cheating and kids getting paid. And PK and I have been doing this for a long time, and we've heard specific stories about people getting 50, 75, 100 grand. And, and coaches off camera, off mic, just laying out who got what. One coach telling us a player who's now in the NBA getting 25 grand for home visits. Just to be, say you're one of the finalists, 25 grand. And they tell us in a way, think, well, this is going on. Now, name, image, and likeness brings all this above board and into the sunlight. And I don't consider name, image, and likeness a shortcut. Maybe you do, and you could expand on that. But I think the conference is going to have to expand on that. Not only a lot of, of, of possibilities for star players, but stuff that's spread all across the roster for everybody so the players who are developing stay at these schools two or three years and develop. Man, that, yeah, there's 50 ways to go with that question. Go any way you'd like. <laughs> yeah, well, listen, as a, as a conference, we're in favor of name, image, and likeness, right? It never made sense to me that if you were a music scholarship student, you could have a YouTube channel and make money off of your name, image, and likeness. But if you did that as a college athlete, you'd lose your eligibility. That just doesn't make sense. There have to be some guardrails. And the guardrails that I think everybody agrees on is that name, image, and likeness the amount you get paid has to be tied to actual work you do and the use of your name, image, and likeness. And it can't be used for inducement or pay for play, right? It can't be used as a payment to go to one school over another school or, or to play in the games. And we're seeing that happening. And it, it's so bad that you saw, you know, both Nick Saban and Kirby Smart before the national championship game in their press conferences, particularly call out what a problem and an issue this is for college football. And, uh, you know, the, the problem is that there's no national legislation. We have a patchwork of state laws that differ from state to state. The NCA has um, not done any enforcement here. And they basically said, if you comply with your state law, you won't lose your eligibility of your student athlete. And by the way, if you're in a state that has no state law, you can do anything you want in name, image, and likeness and not lose your eligibility. So in some respects, it's better to be in a state that has no state law because, you know, you, you're just you can do whatever you want. And until we have 
federal legislation or national enforcement of no inducement and no pay for play, uh, it's the Wild West. And the stories that you've heard, I hear every day. Uh, I know what's happening. Uh, I've talked to the other A5 commissioners about how we can work together to try and solve that issue. Um, but I think we're stuck with it until we get some federal legislation or national enforcement. So are the late start times just a fact of life, given the fact of where we are in the country and we're in the West and mountain and time, a specific time zone? And can we do anything about it? Yeah, one of, one of the greatest strengths as a conference is, uh, unlike the other Power Five conferences, we don't have geographic competition as a Power Five. You know, we have all of the Power Five schools in the mountain and Pacific time zones. That's going to be true until BYU joins the Big 12. Um, so that provides a unique opportunity. If you're a television network, you want to program primetime West Coast games uh, that are Power Five games. And the Pac-12 is your only alternative to provide those quality games in that time uh, kind of frame. And for us, what that means is we get paid more to play a game at you know 7 or 8 p.m. West Coast than if we played that same game earlier in the day. And the, the revenue is important, but we have to balance that revenue against competitive advantage and against national exposure, obviously, if 75% of the population that lives in the central uh, and eastern time zone is asleep by halftime, that's not good for Heisman voting. It's not good for CFP or AP voting. It's not good for, um, you know, just the, the popularity of our schools and the brand building we need to do. So there are creative ways to trade that off. In our next media rights deal, if I had to guess, we would agree to play those games but I think we'd want a little bit more control over which teams are playing in those games during what part of the season, because right now we have no control. ESPN and Fox, who are our great partners, have the right to basically tell us, sometimes with six days notice or 13 days notice, these are the teams we want to play in that late game. And, you know, it ends up obviously being our best teams. And those are the teams that we want to be able to highlight nationally where those are the players who are eligible for a Heisman Trophy vote that we want to highlight. And, you know, I think historically, you know, David Shaw will tell you, I think he's been public about the fact that he thinks Stanford lost two Heisman Trophies because of those late games. So, you know, we we have to work on the structure and get a little bit more flexibility, uh, but I don't think we're not going to play those games because they're valuable. Having lived in California, I think they're not only valuable for TV, I think that a large portion of the fan base likes primetime West Coast football. And 8.30 is a little awkward for this time zone, but 7.30 works great if you're in L.A. or San Francisco. So I don't, I don't think you can completely run from that. I wonder if you can get a balance where your two best teams or the Heisman candidates are playing in the second or third TV window. Uh, two games that probably feature the middle of the league are in the late night window unopposed, and two games are on the Pac-12 network, and they probably involve teams that aren't going to be bowl eligible or teams that are last in their division, that kind of stuff. Is, is that kind of balance, are you going to be capable of getting that kind of deal? Yeah, again, everything's a trade-off, right? If, if you're willing to accept a little bit less revenue, the networks will give you a little bit more flexibility. And the great news is there are partners. They want our league to be successful, and they understand those challenges. So we'll work on that as part of the media rights negotiation. I will say that um, you know playing in primetime for a television audience is great. I do hear, and I think it's a real concern, 
from some of our schools that it's difficult for fan attendance and for building kind of a family tradition of, you know, the kids yeah. come into the games their entire childhood when, when you have those late games. And that's particularly true for some of our schools where more of their fan base, you know, it, you got to drive 90 minutes from Portland to get to Corvallis. And, you know, that, that, that's an issue. And when the game ends at 10.30 or 11, you know, that, that, that's, that's different than if the game ends, you know, late afternoon. So it, it's all about, we'll, we'll work through all of these. I mean, the, the great news about all of this is the athletic directors, the presidents and chancellors who make up my board and are my bosses uh, and the conference office are all 100% aligned in what we're trying to achieve and will be collaborative about figuring out solutions. With this alliance that has been created, as far as scheduling for football, what is your idea and what would you like to see be implemented and when as far as the non-conference scheduling, given the alliance or maybe even beyond that? Well, you know, when I joined college athletics seven months ago, I joined with very little collegiate athletic experience. And I was always a fan uh, but there are things that just never made sense to me. So, the, you know, the top of that list, it's a long list, but the top of that list about what doesn't make sense in college athletics is that we schedule co- college football games, you know, 10, 12, 15 years ahead of time, right? Uh, Utah has a home and away series with LSU in 2031 and 2032. How does that make sense? So, uh, the, the thought is, how do you make sure that you have teams to play that are quality teams that will lead to you know kind of great great matchups? If if you don't actually go and schedule those games and contract those games way in advance, particularly if everyone else is doing it, what teams are going to be left to play? So Nirvana North Star for football scheduling for the Alliance is each of the three conferences eventually, and again, consistent with existing contractual obligations and consistent with the need to include the media partners in figuring this out, eventually we each get to a place where we've agreed to play eight conference games and one game against each of the other conferences every year. So Pac-12 teams would have eight conference Pac-12 games, one game against the ACC, one game against the Big Ten, one of them, those games would be home. The other would be away. That would switch from year to year. Uh, games 11 and 12, the athletic director and the football coach can schedule. They can make sure they have seven home games. They can make sure they have two games that are you know, not power five games, if that's what, if that's what they want. Um, and the amazing part, if our 12 teams know that they've got 12 games against the Big Ten and 12 games against the ACC, is you don't have to schedule those years in advance. You wait till the end of the previous season. You look at matchups for next season, and you schedule those matchups. And it allows you to be much more dynamic about creating great product. You can, if, if two brothers are playing on, on different teams in different leagues, you can match up those two teams. If there's a great bowl matchup that you know, goes into triple overtime and you want to have a rematch of that bowl the following season, you can do that. You can really do made for television. The other thing that you could achieve is and one of the coaches say says, Hey, I'm you know, I'm I'm trying to recruit a kid in Michigan. I want to play, you know, in, in the state of Michigan next year. You, you can to some extent make those kind of things happen. So 
again, I just, I just think there's lots of examples of this. For me, the, the best example, I, I was an ACC kid. I was a Virginia guy. I, I remember the excitement of the ACC Big Ten Basketball Challenge where the announcement about who you were going to play came out you know, a couple months before, not years before. And we, we can achieve that same thing in football, I think. Um, lots of hurdles to get there. It'll be several years, but I think eventually we'll get there. George Klavkov joining us, Pac-12 commissioner. One thing that would help more exposure with the league is if there were more networks and more TV windows. Part of the alliance and the scheduling out the championship is to uh, create uh, championship opportunities for other networks. Is CBS going to get into college football? And not just with the one window they have with the SEC, but when that deals up, will they be televising two or three games every Saturday? Because obviously that would open some opportunities for the Pac-12. Yeah, I don't want to talk about any specific networks uh, because we've talked to all of them and I don't want to disclose any anything you know, that, that's confidential. What I will tell you is in a world where less and less people are getting their video product on um, the satellite and cable every year and where uh, you know, over-the-top the direct-to-consumer services are popping up every day and competing against each other uh, for, for subscribers and where you know, every piece of glass connected to the internet is now a device where you can watch, you know, a game. Um, There are, you know, a lot of folks who want the content that we have to sell. And when our media rights come up for renegotiation, we're going to have multiple bidders for every tier of our rights because it's such a valuable product. There's no more valuable video product than live sports. It it attracts the right demographic, by the way, particularly Pac-12, uh, our, our alumni uh, are higher net earners than, you know, kind of any other group. Uh, it, 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 it allows you to run commercials that are more valuable because it's live. People are less likely to fast forward through commercials. They're watching that programming live and they see the commercials. It aggregates large audiences, right? More than 90 of the top 100 watch television programs last year were sporting events. Um, so it, everything about it uh, indicates that it's the most valuable programming, and it's programming that is generally sold somewhat exclusively uh, for, for the Tier 1 product. So we're, we're going to have a line of people um, wanting to buy the product, and it's going to include lots of television networks, not, not just our existing partners. I believe before you took this job, Commissioner, that you did extreme deep diligence and did deep dives on everything. And you had certain things that you felt like had to have happened in order for you to say yes, because you knew full well of all the issues that you were getting into. I mean, it, and it went crazy as you've, you've spoken on Twitter, you know, within what days you had the Big 12 with the two teams leaving to the SEC. And now you probably couldn't have predicted that maybe. But I'm wondering for you, as far as the financial investment, because I've been looking and reading other interviews that you do. I spent 23 years in newspapers, so I always scour the internet every day as far as that goes. And I saw some interviews that you did in terms of wanting the presidents and chancellors to make that financial commitment necessary. Did you have that set up that, okay, if I take this job, these are the things that I need you to do? You understand what I'm saying? Sort of be in it to win it, so to speak. Well, what I, what I would say is um, during the interview process, uh, I was so sure I wasn't getting the job that I, I thought I could be incredibly transparent with the presidents and chancellors who were interviewing me, right? And I kind of laid it all on the line. And I said, listen, I, you know, we're the 
we're the conference of champions. You know, we've won more NCAA titles in 54 of the last 60 years and each, each of the last 16 years than any other conference. And that's great. But the economic engine that drives college athletics and allows us to invest in all of those other sports is, you know, 70% football, 30% men's basketball. And, um, we have not won a uh, championship in those two sports in 17 years. And I think in order to be successful in everything we do and to continue to support thousands of student athletes and give away all these scholarships and build the facilities that support all these other uh, Olympic sports, and uh, we, we need to be good in those two sports. And I, I didn't have the answers, and I'm not sure I have all of the answers yet, but I certainly said that to the presidents and chancellors when I were, was interviewing, and they all agreed. And for me, I wasn't asking for specific financial commitments, or but, but just the ethos in the room was, yeah, like we have to be good in those two sports. And it will be a building process, right? It, 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 it's a long climb out of the valley that we're in, but we'll get there. And there's a, there's a certain cyclical nature of this stuff, but, but it is 17 years. And... Um, you know, they were all aligned with that as part of the priorities that I was saying I would bring to the conference. And when I was announced in May, again, two, two and a half months before I actually took the job, it, it was one of the four kind of pillar priorities for the league to be good in football and good in men's basketball. And I wouldn't have said that if I didn't think the presidents were aligned with me. George Klavka, Pac-12 commissioner, joining us. Uh, the Pac-12 basketball tournament, they've tried L.A. and they've tried Las Vegas, and I think everybody thinks Las Vegas is better. The football game just drew over 50,000 in Vegas. L.A.'s got a brand-new stadium, and you're playing in the bowl game in there. Oregon State was there year one against Utah State. At some point, do you need to try L.A., or do you think the Pac-12 title game is a Vegas event and it, it needs to stay in Vegas and grow? Well, we, we have another year on our existing deal to play at Allegiant Stadium in Vegas. Yeah, I, I was kind of on the other side of that deal because my previous job at MGM Resorts in Vegas, we, we, we helped bring both the basketball tournaments and the football championship game to Vegas. And I was you know sitting on the other side of the table for those negotiations. I, I think Vegas is a great spot. But we're not counting out any other opportunities. SoFi Stadium is amazing. Uh, you know, the Jimmy Kimmel Los Angeles Bowl was was really fun, uh, and that's a terrific venue. Um, but you know, I, I don't want to like say we're committed one place or another, right? The cities benefit from having us there, and there's a little bit of a bidding opportunity uh, for the conference, and we'll go through that when we're ready to extend to the next set of football championship games and um, we'll certainly look at other places but I, I can't say enough good things about how Allegiant Stadium and the Raiders and Las Vegas have treated us uh, both in basketball and football. What's your good instinct commissioner on the actual parameters of the playoff? My gut instinct is that we're going to expand. My gut instinct is that it's going to be 12. Could, could be 8 although the SEC has very clearly said we're, you know, we're not going, we're not going to vote in favor of eight, only 12. Um, I, you know, I, I think the interesting thing is if you focus on uh, what we need to change it in the current 12-year term, right, that runs through 2025, um, you need unanimous consent of all 11 folks in the room. 
And that has proven to be really, really difficult. Um, you know, there are other issues, but the format is the big issue. And there's not a single format that has 11 yes votes. Um, if you focus on, well, the contract ends at the end of the current term and in year 13 and beyond, we currently have zero commitment to each other. Like there's, there's, there's no grant of rights. There's, there's, there's no contract beyond year 12. There's nothing. So there's a group, a subgroup of that 11 that could say, hey, from year 13 and beyond, we want to have this structure and this format. And then the others who are not part of that conversation or who originally said no to a particular format would have to make a decision about whether or not to join the group. How many need to be in that group and who needs to be in that group? I think is up for debate. Uh, you know, I would I would consider the Pac-12 to be one of the people that would have to be part of that group to, to make it, um, you know, a, a legitimate enough playoff that others would have to decide whether or not to join. But um, yeah, that that's the way to focus. The way to focus is what does it look like beyond year 12, and then once you have that format set up for beyond year 12, since by definition. It's going to be more access for everybody. I think it's pretty pretty easy to say, hey, can we shoehorn that in for years 11 and 12 as well? And people will say yes. But we've been focused for most of the last you know, seven months on what can we get 11 people to say yes to? And I just think we're at a point where we have to stop having that conversation because it's clear we're not getting there. Well, that's some serious power politics to end on right there. I appreciate that. Commissioner, we appreciate you coming on and uh, really laying this all out for all the uh, the Pac-12 fans listening. Thanks for joining us and look forward to having you on somewhere down the road again. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time and your support of Pac-12. Thank you. There's George Klyavkov, Pac-12 commissioner. And if you missed any of that, you want to hear the whole thing, or you want to hear it again, you're really hardcore, wherever you get your podcasts, it's available everywhere. Just search DJ and PK, Klyavkov, and it doesn't matter. Uh, Apple, Google, iTunes, uh, Stitcher, blah, 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 on down the line. It's, it's everywhere. All right, when we come back, what is trending? All the headlines. Since last we spoke to you. The Jazz went back-to-back, played the Nuggets and the Lakers, and there were six NFL playoff games. We'll get to all that coming up next right here on 97.5 at 1280 The Zone.